Hello and welcome to PSA's Better Intelligence Podcast. I'm Michael Olver, CEO of Pacific Strategies and Assessment. I'm here today to talk with Adam Wollstenholme about the economic sanctions regime recently introduced by the United Kingdom. One of the consequences of Brexit is that the UK is now re-establishing a sanctions regime that is independent of EU sanctions policy. This process began with SAMLA, the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2018. The reason we are seeking expert commentary on this is because the sanctions provisions of this act came into effect in July of this year. While the initially sanctioned parties have been carefully limited to those who have participated in high-profile violations of human rights, the new regime has the potential to become more expansive, both in terms of scope of targeted persons and the possible secondary effects for businesses around the world. Adam is a UK barrister and is currently a managing associate at Simmons & Simmons in Dubai. He has a strong background in financial services regulation and works on cross-border transactions, sanctions, and white-collar crime. In this episode, we discuss SAMLA, who it impacts and how, and its likely implications going forward. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good evening, Michael. Adam, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? My name is Adam Wollstenholme. I am a barrister from the UK. I'm currently a managing associate at the law firm of Simmons & Simmons based in the DIFC. Uh, I advise on a broad spectrum of um, complex cross-border matters centering around financial services regulation and financial crime, white-collar crime. So my practice encompasses all aspects of potentially sensitive areas of work for multinational companies or those companies who have interests abroad. Previously, I worked in criminal defense, so necessarily a tactical approach to representing our clients. Um, I've got a good grounding in the Middle East, having worked in Dubai on cross-border GCC matters for the last four years or so. Great. So, Adam, we're, we're here to talk this evening about the 2018 Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act and the, the knock-on, the recent July 2020 release of the Global Human Rights Sanctions Regulations. So, uh, essentially, this is, this is the UK's very own sanctions regime that's been brought in and is now become, uh, I guess, a living thing as of July. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this this act? What's it, what is the intent? What is it trying to achieve? This is the first step, really, with the UK breaking away from the sanctions regime that previously regulated the UK approach to foreign policy, namely that of the European Union. Now, whilst the UK has had uh, instruments in place previously that could regulate or necessitate actors, uh, UK-based actors, in their um, dealings with with foreign nationals or with particularly uh, sensitive topics. The sanctions, the 2018 Sanctions and Money Laundering Act, really provides the base from which the UK can now mount its international sanctions policy. And one of the first examples that we now see of that coming out in July of this year is the Global Human Rights Sanctions Regulations 2020. Now, what those regulations do are effectively hold to account bad actors, those individuals who have contravened what what Britain says were the basic human rights. So they are centered around um, specific aspects such as, well, three main targets, those that have interfered with the right to life, those that have tortured or imposed cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment on others. Third and the final topic, 
those that have um, enslaved others. So this is a, a UK bit of legislation, and the UK really is is the important aspect here because we we will start to see the UK taking a more proactive approach, um, as we have seen other jurisdictions do in the past, such as the US. And so, do you think that this is the initial foray? It's something. It's a consensus item that then is going to be built upon into a more robust regime, or you know, what what was at play here? Indeed. So the driving factor from this at the outset has been Brexit. So the the UK is leaving the European Union finally on exit day, which will be the 31st of December of this year of 2020. And from that stage onwards, the UK will have autonomy over its sanctions regime. So sanctions broadly are how it's a punitive tool that can be used for various different instruments. And here we're talking about uh, financial sanctions, uh, which can be used by one state to prompt another, either individual or a grouping or a state, to act in a certain way or to cease uh, and desist from acting in a certain way. Uh, So this really, and the approach that the UK have taken, does show a, a step forward in the right direction. And it is it is just a first step. We've already heard murmurings from the UK authorities that this specific uh, regulation will be added to probably by the end of the year, uh, widening the scope to incorporate those that have undertaken corrupt practices internationally as well. So would this potentially tie in with the much lauded UK Bribery Act? It could do. You have what is still a relatively advanced tool with the UK Bribery Act. It is a, a tool that can regulate UK nationals wherever they are within the world. In, in in many respects, it goes further than its US brother document, which is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, so on that basis and looking at the way SAMLO, the Sanctions and Money Laundering Act, has been drafted, there is the potential now for the UK authorities to use these instruments more expansively than other state actors have done previously. Well, maybe that's the next place to go with this. So who does this apply to? So um, clearly there are groups who've violated these very fundamental uh, rights. Who who needs to be concerned about this? Is it only UK companies? Is it UK individuals? Who Who is impacted by this directly? Direct impact in the first instance would be to those to whom would become a, a listed person. Now, a listed person would be a person who had undertaken one of those three types of human rights abuses. So quickly, again, that's the interference with the right to life, those that have um, imposed torture or cruel, inhuman, degrading treatment or punishment, or those that have enslaved another. Now, any individual Mm -hmm. that has done that as an activity, either outside of the UK or within the UK, but who is not a UK person, um, and this includes a positive actor, also an omission, so an interesting factor of this. If, If someone has omitted to prevent the uh, interference with the right to life, then they could potentially also be listed under this. So directly, it is those that have undertaken uh, these activities. Now, what happens if an individual is listed 
under the uh, global, global human rights uh, regulations. Well, what that means in practice is that all of their assets are to be frozen by the UK authorities. And that's where we then get the knock-on effect for UK persons. Now, I'll come to the definition very quickly of UK persons, but it means that any individual who is a UK person must immediately cease to deal with uh, the listed person. And if they fail to do so, they will be punished under the, under the regulations. And the regulations have both a civil and a criminal aspect to it. So I mentioned uh, the UK person there. Now that UK person um, has yeah. got a wide definition as it is applied, but essentially, essentially it's a UK national or a body, so an entity incorporated or constituted within the UK. There would be something listed in the company's house or something listed on the stock exchange. That's correct. So it, it is slightly less expansive in my view, than the definition of, of U.S. person. It is still an, an expansive definition. So quite famously, uh, a lot of U.S. global jurisdiction is established by U.S. dollar transactions. Is there the same mechanism or an intent to the same mechanism for pounds transactions? Or you know, how far does this reach beyond just definition of the UK person. So under the US sanctions regime, any US denominated transactions um, provide jurisdiction to OFAC or the Office of Foreign Assets Control. There is no equivalent provision mm -hmm. within SAMLA, nor has there been any discussion that any GBP or Great British Pound denominated transactions would um, expand the territorial scope of the legislation to those that have dealt with pounds. So there's, there is no equivalent provision. Okay, so it's simply UK persons. So UK persons in the first instance, but what we may find of particular interest, and, and specifically those who, who are listening to this outside of the UK, is the potential knock-on effect that these regulations may have under the global practice of de-risking. So de-risking is yeah. something that we have seen with the US sanctions regime, and then it is likely my opinion that we, we would see that under the, the use of these UK instruments. So what that means effectively is that banks or financial institutions fearing uh, punitive action under the international sanctions regime will refuse to interact with those that are listed persons. Rather than trying to mitigate the risk, they simply pull up the drawbridge, as it were, and, and refuse to, to interact with these individuals. We may see further consequences rather than those applied specifically to the listed person or to UK persons. Yeah, one of the questions we wanted to deal with was the, the secondary impact of the sanctions. So you have the named persons, you have the people that wish to do business with them, and then you have... Um, uh, so I'm trying to think of a, of a good example in terms of the people that should be watching this, um, so those of, of our listeners, it would be individuals who may be looking at, at Hong Kong for China accent action based on, on the current state of, of UK-China relationships. It would be, what, what would be some of the examples of, of likely potential sanctions to be to be guarding against? One thing that makes this uh, th these regulations particularly relevant and something that I would urge all of your listeners to take notice of is the maneuverability 
from which the UK authorities can now act. They can pass legislation, they can pass regulation very quickly in respect of this. But there are provisions within there that make it a more subjective approach than previous sanctions regime. An example of that would be that there is now a control requirement under uh, SAMLA. What that means is it's not simply looking at who the beneficial owner of a, an entity is, it is who's actually controlling it so that the controller of the company may not be listed. Now, some of your listeners, particularly those working in compliance, may not necessarily be aware who's controlling an interest in the first stage. So that, that is where it um, underlines the importance of proper and effective due diligence uh, for, for any counterparty. Because if that counterparty is not properly vetted and, and the sanction, new UK sanctions regime binds, that could mean that assets being frozen um, and it could uh, undermine a transaction, it could undermine any any business interest that may have. And of course, UK nationals travel widely. We have wide, speaking as a UK national myself, we have business interests all over the world. So not necessarily just a, a company would be looking at. It's also who are the employees who are involved in the transaction, because if those individuals are involved in the transaction and there's no other UK nexus, then there may be the potential that it could um, derail your listeners' involvement. So this is, and I just want to be very clear, um, this is beyond the 50% rule. This is actual sort of a beneficial relationship that results in, in some kind of exerting some kind of control on the management decisions of the company Indeed. by a listed person. Indeed. So it's a, a second part. It's, um, it's an either. It's not a cumulative requirement. It is there is a, a controlling or um, ownership interest or, or voting right interest of, of 50%, similar to the US 50% rule. But then also there is this um, new and, and interesting controlling provisions. That's very interesting. Um, because there's already, um, within the industry as a whole, there's already an impetus towards identifying uh, beneficial ownership, largely because of this 50, 50% rule, and especially because of the issues, uh, the, the, you know, the recent round of Russia sanctions. Um, but this is having control specifically be an issue is, is something that I certainly wasn't aware of until just now, and, and I think people are going to find very interesting. First question is, is who, who's in charge of enforcing this? Um, and then we'll come back to later on, what do you do if you find that you're you're engaged with somebody on this this list? First, first of all, if I might, it may add a, a further question to that, would be um, who, who is responsible for providing the listings? There are there are two um, under the legislation. The minister is responsible for uh, listing individuals under the uh, under SAMLA. Now, the minister is defined as either the Secretary of State or Her Majesty's Treasury. And those two effectively are responsible for um, listing and shaping the foreign policy as provided under the the UK sanctions framework. You mentioned Dominic Raab. He, he has said that it will be a priority of his once the UK uh, leaves uh, the European Union to be proactive in respect of tackling those who do commit gross violations of human rights and there is mm -hmm. this sanctions legislation it, it can be collected together with with other 
and UK instruments. So you've mentioned the UK Bribery Act, but also unexplained wealth orders. Now, these these instruments taken together provide the platform from which the UK is attempting to stem the flow of illicit funds into the UK and trying to deter criminal actors from uh, laundering the proceeds of crime uh, within the jurisdiction of the UK. Again, all of this stuff is relatively new. Um, considering you know the, the City of London, considering the financial powerhouse that is the UK, I, I know this deals with Brexit and decoupling of disentangling, I think. Unexplained wealth orders have, have recently been knocked back in the courts, if I remember correctly, in the last month or two. There's quite a workout period that had to come to pass for UKB when, when there was a great deal of guessing work. How long would it be until there's, there's a clear comfort in terms of what the penalties, what the, the outcome is in, in, in terms of violating this? Will it be a matter of establishing precedents and you know, a one to two year window? In, in respect of the sanctions framework specifically, you, you asked about the enforcement bodies. So within the UK, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, so the OFSI, is the relevant uh, enforcement authority. Now, mm-hmm. in respect of their enforcement processes, they undertook three, um, they fined three entities last year in 2019 in respect of um, breaches of the UK sanctions regime. They have also, the the number escapes me at the moment, but also uh, they investigated every every potential sanctions breach that was reported to them. They did a, an investigation of, of each potential breach. So they have shown themselves to be proactive in in this uh, in this manner um, so as you said that th- there may be uh, somewhat of a delay uh, as it as they find their comfort zone but also when you um, look at the office of, of financial sanctions implementation what they have ready for exit day so the 31st of December it, it's very much a case of the UK is ready and raring to go they have tailored sanctions that affect different jurisdictions around the world and also affect sanctions uh, in the Middle East as well. So how does how does a complaint get filed? Um, is it a, a complaint filed to the OFSI by a concerned party that there may be an issue? What would be the, the process and response of this? That, that's correct. There are certain positive reporting obligation, certain entities in the UK and UK persons that would would need to report uh, where they have a reasonable belief that there has been a breach of the UK sanctions regime. Uh, Alternatively, there is the option for the reasonable person to uh, make a report of a breach to the OFSI as well. Now, upon receipt of uh, that allegation, the OFSI has the authority to impose its own civil monetary penalty. So they can um, apply a civil fine to the offending actor uh, for breaching or or contravening um, the UK sanctions regime. Alternatively, uh, they can also um, refer the matter to the criminal courts for prosecution. Uh, so breaching the UK sanctions regime is a criminal offence. Now, it is what, what is known as a, an offence that is triable either way. 
So that means it can be tried before the magistrate's court, which would result in a maximum penalty of 12 months imprisonment for the offending actor, or alternatively, it's triable on indictment, which means it is heard in the Crown Court, whereby the maximum available penalty would be seven years imprisonment. So these are serious criminal matters if they are referred to the criminal court. Are there some numbers or an understanding of how the civil penalties are calculated? Is this a percentage of uh, profit as, as with some of the similar uh, in the United States? The level of fines that have been imposed to date cannot be compared to the uh, level of fines that we have seen by the US authorities. So in the three cases that I mentioned that were received punitive fines last year, they were they started at £5,000, the second fine was £10,000, and the third was uh, just under £150,000. So not significant in the financial amount compared to um, the US colleagues. But if I could just put that into context, now the £5,000 fine uh, was as a result of a very modest um, infringement of the sanctions regime, whereby the actual amount of the breach of the regime was for an amount of £200. So there was a, a considered a very minor breach where £200 had been, been processed contrary to the, the sanctions regime, and that had resulted in a £5,000 penalty. The UK authorities are taking a strict stance in respect of this, if we look at it from a proportionality perspective. Because the, the, I mean, if you compare it to, say, the standard charter bank wire stripping, I mean, that was an incredible fine, but there was also an incredible amount of money that transacted. So this is setting a very high bar. Correct. There are restrictions within the legislation that the uh, level of the fine must be capped at either 50% of the amount of the breach or alternatively £1 million. Uh, so there is there is a cap, um, and it's whichever is the higher of those two amounts. So it's unlikely to to see the the large sort of three hundred fifty million dollars settlements and um, that you get either out of the the Southern District of New York or um, through other deferred prosecution agreements and things like that. Well, there is the potential for deferred prosecution agreement. There are those provisions within the legislation that DPAs or deferred prosecution agreements can be used in respect of breaches of the UK sanctions legislation. We are yet to see that in force, but that, of course, may necessitate a much greater uh, financial settlement than what is currently available under the legislation. Now, I, I must stress this is what the legislation provides currently. There may be of course, amendments going forward, and, and that may may accord with the UK's stated uh, objectives going forward to really be a deterrent uh, to those who do um, commit these egregious uh, violations of human rights. So the, the question is, was there an initial amnesty period for businesses in the UK in order to review, uh, make a clean breast of, of any interactions previously, um, file the, you know, obviously, uh, remove these individuals as, uh, and, and companies as clients, was there a chance for them to get away from this or get ahead of this um, beforehand? The short answer to that is no. The potential for the global human rights regulations had been mooted 
over the last year or so, and we were expecting to see those individuals named that have been named. So there is an argument to mm. say that there, there was a, a practical grace period there, but a legal grace period, no. Um, when the regulations came into force, they came into force very swiftly at the start of July. No amount of fanfare, really, no notification to smaller businesses. The, uh, the risk assessment and, and the assessments uh, conducted by the UK authorities did consider that. Um, but on the whole, they took the... Um, stance that the mischief of this legislation is really to punish those who have committed these egregious acts and that they should not be afforded the opportunity to have access to their funds. Um, so the, the corollary of that is, is that, of course, then UK businesses, UK persons did not have a run into it in the same way that they may have done in, in other jurisdictions. Um, so speaking to a group of businesses based in, in Dubai, a place that we both know very well, where should they be concerned? Um, I mean, these I, I look through the, the comprehensive list. I, I recognized a lot of the names from previous sanctions listings from their, their, their antecedent um, issues. Uh, I think there's four entities on there, and, and all of them are D, uh, North Korean, DPRK, government um, bureaus. Some of these were prohibited previously. Um, as counterparties. But the question that I would have is, are there additional steps that are now necessary um, for businesses that are not maybe directly associated with UK that have to take into account this sanctions regime uh, that they need to apply now? The potential effects are, as we said, the increased concentration of efforts in regards to um, a subjective due diligence process. So really knowing who, who you are dealing with. The UK is, is one of the first actors to introduce this. Uh, we may see other jurisdictions follow suit. Um, but this really substance over form approach or a risk-based rather than, than a rule-based legislation is, is not unique to the UK but is something that we've seen amendments to the UAE federal legislation in regards to that. We've seen amendments to the financial free zones within the United Arab Emirates dealing with that as well. So this is really a marker for companies, the way the prevailing winds are blowing. As a direct consequence, if you do not have a UK person within your, your employ or you're not your counterparty has no nexus to the UK. It does not mean that you can simply ignore this legislation. We have seen for many a year now the intended consequences of the US's extraterritorial sanctions regime. And anyone working within compliance will no doubt have had to deal with frustrated members of their of their team when they said, well, we don't have any US nexus. Why can't we do this? Where, why, why do we have these obstacles? Now, it may well be that the UK sanctions regime has a similar effect and it, it may be prohibitive for many acts or intents going forward. So um, we were recently asked to take a look at something in Myanmar. And Myanmar is obviously high risk specifically relative to Rohingya issues. Uh, we were looking at it, and I've got, got to be honest, from, from a, an FCPA standpoint, from a, uh, a series, a prison that we know very well, that we're very comfortable with, and we were looking specifically for ownership links to individuals who were either listed or who were concerned. I'm doing the math in my head in terms of how we should have approached that 
taking into account this this new understanding of, of control being a requirement. And there was a, a arguably a British nexus to this. When I'm looking for more practical applications, it really is, I think that's my, my takeaway from this, is that we're, we're going to need to start adding control as a mandatory requirement. So not just source of wealth, not just any the presence of any sanctioned persons, but really uh, any kind of beneficial control that can be proven. The first thing that, that we're going to get into trouble for when we find that a lot of times is going to be, how can you prove this and therefore how can it be proven um, by the regulatory authority? Is that something you'd feel comfortable speaking to? Yes, I, I think the difficulty, I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. This is a difficult difficult thing to prove or a difficult thing to rebut. And, and this is why we do anticipate there will be many uh, challenges to what is a nascent area of the UK legislative process. So in regards to that, the LIM as provided for the control test, it, it may may assist if I just, just provide that. So a listed person controls the company if it is reasonable in the circumstances. So reasonable in the circumstances, so a subjective test that one cannot apply objective criteria to. If it is reasonable in the circumstances to expect that the listed person would be able, in most cases or in significant respects, by whatever means and whether directly or indirectly, to ensure that the company's affairs are conducted in accordance with the listed person's wishes. What, what in effect are we looking at there? We're looking at, is it reasonable for you, for your, your clients to um, consider that listed person is controlling in or the company is acting or, or the relevant entity is acting in accordance with the listed person's wishes? So it's quite mm. a nebulous concept but the the objective of the uk authorities is, is clear and that is where it is a substance over form approaches even if you cannot show that direct link looking at it taking a step back is it reasonable to say that that listed person is effectively controlling this company whether seen or unseen and we we may see of course the changes to the sanction screening process for this i'm aware that um, some financial institutions have adopted this control test within their screening policies already yeah i'm not surprised at all because it would be it, it's a critical so i'm quite old and been doing this for a long time this goes back to the sort of you know source of funds in the early 2000s became the basis the hinge point for the entire enterprise when doing financial due diligence. I think control is 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 really going to be, um, because you're right, that is, you use the, the phrase nebulous, that is quite a broad definition. Um, you could you could drive quite a lot in. I'm thinking about multiple cases in which, in which it came down to sort of, you know, if Mr. So-and-so shows up in the building, um, do people bow? <laughs> do, do, do people treat him, open the doors for him and treat him like he's the boss and listen to what he says? then yes, okay, we can't do business with this guy. Uh, but that, that sort of shores that up quite a lot. This has been quite a fascinating discussion. Now. Thank you very much, Adam. I guess the, the two questions that I would have for you to close this off is, if somebody finds that they are having a little bit of trouble with this law, they've maybe not been as proactive in their due diligence, if there's something in their system that they need to 
deal with, what should their first steps be? And a valid answer is call a lawyer. <laughs> don't do anything. Don't send any emails and, and call your, your in-house counsel and get, go external is, is a perfectly valid answer. But what, what should they do with this? Indeed. So this is, again, you, you hit the nail on the head there, because this is such a nascent area of legislation. So it's so new and the the potential for an individual to fall foul of the legislation underlines the importance that if an instance such as this happens where you have perhaps found a failing within your internal compliance program or there's been a, mis- a mistake or an oversight in respect of your uh, interactions with another, it's important to do nothing in the first instance in respect of that individual. Call the lawyer, yes, mm. definitely. But two, cease communication with the individual. Do not return any funds. This is not an equivalent situation where you have the potential of a money launderer on your hands, where where if you were to cease communication or, or um, freeze funds, then that may have the effect of tipping off the money launderer. This is not one of those cases. This is a case where the mischief of the legislation, the objective of the legislation is to stop all funds from being accessed by a listed person. So so two things, stop what you're doing and then two, call, call the lawyer. And so that's the, that's the immediate thing. The importance of calling the lawyer is one, you need to make sure that you are reporting necessarily. The reporting obligation may not apply to you directly. You may have to consider what are your obligations in the jurisdiction that you are in. If you are not based in the UK, you may have local law provisions that you may uh, need to consider. If you make a notification to the IFSI, that does not relieve you of your further um, reporting obligations. For example, you may still have to make a report to the UK's National Crime Agency as a responsible body for uh, money laundering investigations. So um, you may have to submit a suspicious activity report to them. You may also have to make notification to your relevant regulator. So it's it's not a case of you find this out, you notify, you can wash your hands and walk away. It's a case it, it, it's important mm. that the report if it is to be made, is to be to be made quickly, made properly, and you ensure that you protect your your company and the interests um, of of the company. Perfect. Just wanted to underline in case it wasn't clear that the because it's UK in origin, but you are likely based in a third country, the reporting obligations are going to be quite complex. I just think, as a matter of course, you're going to expect to spend a great deal of time, uh, educated time working on who you inform first, second, and third, what you inform to who um, at those various different points. And do you have anything to add to that? No, I, I would just say, no, you're quite quite right. Just because you're not based in the UK, it is a, a complex um, consideration. If you're going to report in the first instance, then, then secondly, um, if you do report, to whom do you make that report? It's not a case of you can just bury your head in the sand, though, because if you are seen to be um, complicit with this, uh, there there are potential consequences from a, a wider perspective. I um, I have dealt with a client, represented a client who chose not to report because of a breach of a foreign state's sanctions framework, and as a result of it, were investigated by their home jurisdictions criminal enforcement authorities because there was a suggestion that they were complicit. 
So once you are made aware of these concerns, it does necessitate obtaining proper legal advice. And using that as a perfect segue, how do people get in touch with you? We we have a very good, if I may say, so website at Simmons & Simmons that provides you up-to-date information on, on UK legislation, legislation across Asia, wherever we have offices. I'm readily contactable via LinkedIn or, or through you, Michael, as well. So I have a very complicated British name, Wollstonehome, but... Um, there's not many of us online, so I'm, I'm, a Google search tends to bring me up. Perfect. But listen, I just wanted to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. I learned a great deal. Uh, this was very exciting to me because I really enjoyed this. You and me both. But thank you so much for taking the time, and, uh, and uh, thanks for joining thank us. Thank you very much for having me.